This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. In The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins travels to the Lonely Island. And as you know, if you've read the book or seen the movie, he runs into a lot of different trials and dangers. And yet despite this, he found a safe place to rest in Rivendale. Tolkien says this in The Hobbit. Elrond's house was perfect. Whether you liked food or sleep or storytelling or singing or reading or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness. So while Elrond's house is part of Tolkien's fantasy world, what it does is it stirs up a longing in our own hearts. It stirs up a longing for a house like that here on earth, a place where we can find rest, a place that is filled with singing. That place here on earth is the church. Charles Spurgeon once said this about the church. The church isn't an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It's the fold for Christ's sheep the home for Christ's family. Our verse that we're going to be looking at this morning speaks in the same way about the church. It's the house where we nourish one another with God's word. And yet the means by which that happens is actually kind of surprising as we'll see in the text. We might expect the text to tell us to listen to preaching. And while we should do that, that's what we're, we're doing right now. Paul wants the whole church as well to teach each other how? By singing. Like Elrond's house, the church should be a house filled with singing. And so this brings us to our title and main idea of this sermon today. A gospel house is a singing house. Say that one more time. A gospel house is a singing house. And so in light of this, let's listen to God's word in Colossians 3.16. For context, we're going to start back in verse 12. Read along with me. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Well, it's been a while since we've been in Colossians. You guys are actually in Colossians before I was even here, about three years ago. But just as a reminder, Paul's helping this church see that they are part of the new creation, that they were to put off the old rags of sin and they were to put on their new robe of Christ. And these garments of Christ, as we just read about, they're compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, patience. But most importantly, they were to put on love. And as those clothed in Christ, they needed to be ruled by his peace. The reason why is they were no longer a divided people. But as verse 15 says, they were one body with Christ as the head. And so this brings us to verse 16, which is going to be the focus of our time today. So we're first going to see in this verse that we need to house the gospel with abundance. Let me say that one more time. House the gospel with abundance. Again, our text says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I want you to notice first that phrase that Paul uses, the word of Christ. You might be thinking, what is, what's the word of Christ? Well, earlier in Colossians 1.5, it should just be on the page before this, Paul uses a similar phrase. He says, the word of truth, the gospel. This word of Christ is the gospel. It's the message of Christ's death and resurrection. It's the announcement that the true king has defeated his enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And he's done this, get this, not with a sword, not with an army, but by shedding his own blood on the cross. And this word of Christ has been proclaimed to you, you who were dead in your sin, you who were in rebellion against this very king, you who lived in darkness. Colossians 1.13 tells us that God delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christian, that is now your reality. You have been transferred into Christ's kingdom. But friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to warn you that you are now currently in rebellion against our God and King Jesus Christ. But in his kindness, he's brought you here today and he's let you hear the proclamation of this gospel so that you might trust in him, that you would recognize that you need him for salvation and that you need to be covered by his blood and forgiven. And so, friend, let me give you good news. If you trust in this Jesus, you will be a child of the Father. You will be a citizen in Christ's kingdom, and you will be a new creation by the Spirit. And so, friend, trust in this Jesus and believe this word of Christ 
Repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ. Because this news is good news. It's the best news. It's the gospel. And so secondly, this word of Christ should dwell in us. In other words, Paul's saying the gospel should make its home in you. You might see the you there and jump straight to thinking about yourself individually. And it's true that this, this is uh, true for us individually, but the you there isn't just talking to individuals. It's plural. It's y'all. Church, you're a home for the gospel. That in Christ, you're a temple of the living God. And his gospel is at the center. It's the heartbeat of the church. But notice, thirdly, that this word of Christ should dwell richly in us. In other words, Paul's saying, house the gospel abundantly. One thing I appreciate about my wife, Stephanie, is that she works really hard to make our living room beautiful. Uh, That if you were to come visit me before we were married, you'd probably just find a couch and a TV in the living room. Pretty plain, boring, not hospitable. But thankfully, Stephanie has way better sensibilities than I do. So she picks out rugs and curtains. She picks out mirrors and pictures and puts up lamps and plants. But when she does this, it creates a beautiful environment. It's hospitable. It's not just a place to live, but it's somewhere that that you want to live. And likewise, when gospel doctrine makes its home in our hearts, it produces a beautiful gospel culture in the church. It takes a people who were once marked by anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, and changes them into a people clothed in love, in forgiveness, in peace. In other words, our life together as a church adorns the gospel. It displays the beauty and riches of the word of Christ to those outside of the church when it dwells in us. But if you've spent any time in the church, you know that this is often easier said than done. Loving those who are different than us is really hard. Forgiving those who've hurt us, man, that's even harder. And on top of that, we have to somehow live in peace with one another. I'm sure that many of you have either felt that struggle or feel it even today. And I'll be honest, I I have felt that before. But this is why we need others to help us house the gospel abundantly. We need others to help us get the word of Christ deep in our hearts. And this is why we need to be taught again and again and again and again. And so this brings us to our second point. Teach the gospel with song. Notice that the second portion of our verse talks about teaching and admonishing. This isn't actually the first time that Paul's used this phrase in Colossians. If you look up at Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him, which is referring to Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Your translation might say warning and teaching, uh, which is a good translation, but these here are the same words as the Greek words in our passage. 
So they're teaching and admonishing. And so Paul's, um, notice also that he's teaching and admonishing with wisdom, just like what we see in Colossians 3.16. This wisdom isn't some man-made wisdom. This is wisdom that comes to us from above. And it can only be found in Christ. This is why chapter 2, verse 3, just a couple verses down from there, says that in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul proclaimed this Christ. He taught and admonished and warned others to trust in him and to live for him. And now in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul's calling on the whole church to do the same. He wants them to teach and admonish one another in light of the gospel. And you might be thinking, I'm not qualified for that. That's why I have pastors. And it's true that we have biblically qualified men who have the primary responsibility to teach us sound doctrine. But having said that, pastors aren't the only ones who do this. That in light of this verse, the whole church has a responsibility to teach. But again, notice how we do this. The ESV says, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a fine translation. I, I think the NASB and the CSB capture the Greek better here. They say that we teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This means that when we sing as a church, we're teaching one another. We proclaim the gospel to one another in song. Worship pastor and seminary professor Matthew Westerholm frequently says, the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. The gospel is so true, so good, and so beautiful that mere words won't do. It deserves music. It deserves all of our voices joining in together. So then how should this verse shape how we think about singing as a church? Well, first, singing is for everyone. Listen, worship through song isn't a spectator sport. We don't come on Sunday just to watch the band or the musicians do their thing. All of us come with a job to do, and it's to sing. And so if you're someone who's wondering, what's one way that I can serve this church? It's simple. Come and sing. Even if you're not a trained musician, you don't have to have a music degree from HCU to please the Lord and build up his people. All you need is your voice and a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. And if you're a Christian, then guess what? That's you. You've been redeemed to sing the praises of your king. This is important for all of us to remember, but I think it's particularly important for fathers to remember. The way you sing in corporate worship and at home teaches. My friend Ryan, he was an elder at the, church, the past church I was at in Denton, but he was a great example of this. He wasn't an artsy music guy. He was an exterminator during the week, and he was a hunter on the weekend. And so he's probably the last person that you would think of as like a singer. 
But if you ever sat around his dinner table with him and his family, you would see him and his wife singing hymns with their kids. Particularly one thing I saw them do is that they would sing the doxology at dinner. If you're looking for just one way to start singing in your home, singing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's a really great way to start. But on top of that, you would find him with his family singing in the congregation every Sunday. And guess what the fruit of that was? His kids actually liked to sing. It wasn't weird to them because they didn't know any different. And their kids would also know the lyrics to the songs better than I would because they were singing them all the time and they have better memories. And so, brothers, I want to encourage you, sing loud. Sing with all your heart. It's not effeminate. David, the man who slayed Goliath, who cut off his head, sang. Jesus, your king, who conquered sin, death, and the devil, who was tortured, died, and was buried, and raised, sang. And so, brothers, sing. Sing because you've been redeemed. Having said that, your pastors and song leaders have a responsibility to help everyone sing. We need to sing in a way that you can follow. And more so than that, we need to sing in such a way that you want to join in with what we're doing. And so we need to pick the best songs with the best melodies, with the best theology. This is why we often ask ourselves these questions. These are the questions that that Travis and I asked during the week as we're putting together the order of service. Are the lyrics to these songs worth singing? Are they biblical and beautiful? Is the melody singable? Or is it the kind of melody that's worth singing? Is the song too high or is it too low? Is the instrumentation too loud? Are there strategic moments where we can pull back the instrumentation and hear each other sing. We care about those things because our aim is to serve you for the glory of God. We want to accompany you as you sing to God and to one another. And so secondly, our singing needs variety. Look back at that phrase, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There are a multitude of views for what this phrase actually means. So some believe that this is actually just referring to different types of psalms. And there's, a valid, there's some validity to that view, that all three of these terms are used. If you look at the, the Greek version of the book of Psalms, all three of these terms are used to refer to the psalms. And in Matthew 26, verse 30, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn after the Last, the last Supper, which was during the Passover, so it was probably them singing Psalm 118 or Psalm 136. Others believe that these are just three types of songs that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, would have been familiar with. While both of these views are helpful, we need to remember what Paul wants these songs to accomplish. This phrase comes after, it talks about the word of Christ and teaching and admonishing with the wisdom of Christ. And so the songs that we sing together need to help the gospel dwell in us richly. 
I think what Paul's trying to say is sing a variety of songs that are filled with spiritual truth, truth from Scripture that point us to the gospel. And I think this means that we should sing the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, they help us gaze at the glory of King Jesus. They remind us that he's the promised Messiah and Son of God that all of the Psalms point to. Psalms like Psalm 51 and Psalm 130 help us see our need for King Jesus. They help us confess our sin and look towards his atoning sacrifice. And Psalms like Psalm 22 and Psalm 42 help us see Christ as a sufferer. And they meet us in our own suffering. That even Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22 saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Psalms help us sing the word of Christ in every season. And so my hope is that our song bank as a church over time would include more and more psalms. But we don't need to only sing the psalms. While the psalms of the Old Testament contain the word of Christ in shadows, we now have the substance which is Christ. And this is why Christians throughout the ages have written new hymns that help articulate the gospel. I would even argue it seems that Paul himself is already writing new hymns for the church to sing. If you look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which we're going to look at next month, it's written in the style of a Greek hymn. And while these hymns were often used to praise Caesar, Paul used this style to praise the true king, Jesus Christ. So Paul's basically telling this church, if you're looking for a hymn to sing, sing this one. All in all, we need a variety of songs that help us combat the song of the serpent. His song says, you have an insufficient Christ. He can't make you holy. He can't clothe you with his righteousness. And he can't help you put to death sin. And guess what? He plays that song on repeat at nauseum over and over again until you're broken and beating down and willing to sing along with it. But Christian, you don't have to sing along with him. You can drown out his lies with the voices of God's people when we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need to hear each other sing these truths. We need to be taught with song. And so this brings us to our last point. Sing the gospel with gratitude. Paul isn't just concerned about us singing the right words with the right forms. Paul wants us also to sing with the right motives. So look at the last part of the verse. It says this. Notice First, it says that we sing with thankfulness. I want you to go back to Colossians 1 and just, just scan the book with me real quick and notice how often Paul brings up thankfulness. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul expresses that he's thankful for the Colossians. 
And then in chapter 1, verse 12, he prays that they would be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you in sharing the inheritance of the saints in light. And then later in chapter 2, verse 6, he exhorts them to be abounding in thanksgiving. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, right before our passage, he says, be thankful. And then right after our passage, in chapter 3, verse 17, he tells them to be giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. If anything, our passage right here is in kind of a Thanksgiving sandwich kind of thing. And we could keep going. Paul brings up Thanksgiving even after this. But we need to notice that God cares about us having thankful hearts. And so second, we sing with thankfulness in our hearts. Our singing overflows from a heart of gratitude. And our hearts should be thankful because God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the tyranny of Satan. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it's through this son, Jesus Christ, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so thirdly, we sing with thankful hearts to God. Yes, our singing horizontally blesses one another. We've been talking a lot about that. But our worship is ultimately aimed vertically at God. He's the one true and living God. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. And he's the only one worthy of our worship. And he's given us everything in Christ. And so how could we not worship him? How can we not sing his praises and and be thankful? And yet sometimes, if we're honest, we struggle to sing with thankful hearts. Our gratitude can be squashed by busyness. We've got packed schedules. We're always moving from one thing to the next. And we've left little room during the week to reflect on God's mercy. And yet we show up to church and we wonder why we're so apathetic when we sing. Our gratitude can also be squashed by bitterness. We grow discontent with the hand we've been dealt. And we find it easier to count up all of life's disappointments than all of its blessings. And while we sing sweet melodies with our mouths, the melody in our heart is bitter. Our gratitude can also be squashed by boredom. We've just slowly lost interest in the gospel and God's word, and it seems rote to us. But could it be that we've forgotten our neediness? Have we forgotten that we're utterly hopeless without God's mercy? Brothers and sisters, this is why we need to cultivate thankfulness. Personally, we can do that by setting aside time to to pray and to meditate on God's word. We can aim to guard our thoughts and our words from grumbling. But we need to remember here that cultivating gratitude is a group project. We need to help one another grow in thankfulness. And one way we can do that is by pointing one another to the source of our gratitude, Jesus Christ. 
When we sing, we lift each other's eyes to Calvary. And when we gaze at the cross of Christ, our busy, bitter, and bored hearts are thawed. And what's left? Thankfulness. This is why we sing, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. When we begin to sing thankfully, we start to live thankfully. When we're thankful for the cross, loving others becomes lighter because we're amazed by how richly we've been loved. And when we're thankful for the cross, forgiving others becomes easier because we're humbled by how we've been forgiven. And when this happens, we house the gospel abundantly. It dwells in us richly. And so I wonder, what's your metric for success in worship? Let me ask that again. I wonder, what, what's your metric for success when we sing? It can be really easy for us to be focused on the musicians, the lights, the sound, our preferences when it comes to style. And listen, we want all of those things to be excellent because God deserves our excellence. But we ultimately want to let God's word define success. And in light of this passage, we need to ask, is our whole church becoming a singing people? Is there a culture of gratitude emerging in our members? And are we a people that, that wants to teach one another the gospel through song? This isn't something that we can manufacture, but it is something that we can pray for. And it's something that we can faithfully pursue, trusting God to give us growth in these things. And I just want to encourage you all that, that even since I've been here, just the way that our church sings together, even prior to that, just seeing the, way, the ways that you love others and us as new people coming in, it is evident that God's Spirit is working here and that the Word is bearing fruit. But we want even more fruit. And so would you join me now and ask God that he, would, that he would do just that in our midst. And would you join me in praying that God would make us a real Rivendale, a place filled with singing and love and gratitude for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you have sent your son to save those that, that hated your word, that hated your ways, and yet you have brought us near and that your good news dwells in us. We thank you that your spirit is now transforming us by the power of your word. And so, Father, would you help our church grow more and more and to be a singing people 
and that we would see that as a, as a means by which we get to serve one another as we serve you. But Father, I pray that we would be a thankful people. Father, so often we see in the Old Testament that the first step to apostasy is grumbling. So Father, would we see the awfulness of that sin, but look to Christ and see that he can strengthen us and help us turn from grumbling to gratitude. And Father, I pray that the music ministry of our church would help our members as we aim to become a thankful people. And so, Father, help us even to see that the, the, the singing of our church isn't just prep for the sermon, but it's a ministry that we have to you and to one another. And so, Father, give us a desire to serve each other for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.